Today on the show, I'll be covering a couple of all-time favorites, 1989's Uncle Buck and 1995's Mr. Holland's Opus. Oh yeah! Alright everyone, welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for stopping by, I do appreciate it. My god, okay, so these DC movies, everything that's going on in the DC Comics universe, as far as cinema goes, it's not looking good, folks. It's just, it's an ugly situation. You know, they canceled this Batgirl movie, and it was supposed to have, like, you know, a... a, relatively unheard of Latina leading lady and they just canned it they just said it was it was not not like fixable it was basically just they there was nothing they were going to be able to do to repair what the movie had done wrong after test screenings so I you know I hadn't really gotten too hyped up about it other than the fact that they were definitely supposed to have Michael Keaton back as Batman in that movie, and that was going to be a thing, and it was... So the story is basically that this movie was was going to try and root itself into the other movies that were going on, and it wasn't going to work, and I think that's the biggest issue is that DC has, is they didn't really do a great job of storytelling from the get-go, and it's like they could have easily done an origin story for every single superhero, just like Marvel did, but they wanted to get to the Justice League portion, you know, the equivalent of the Avengers, and they wanted to do it fast. They didn't want to wait around until, you know, 10 years from now or 10, or, you know, however many years from when they started. I mean, because it's funny, they would have actually organically been getting there by now with the, the Justice League movie if they would have just let it run its course and do what they needed to do, but they didn't want to. They got antsy, and they tried to do some things differently, and it didn't really work out for them. I mean, like, that Suicide Squad movie was pretty, like, it does not, it was not good the first time I went and saw it, and then every time I've seen it since, it hasn't aged any better, and it really doesn't look any better on screen, you know? It just doesn't work. So they canceled the Batgirl movie, and then you've got fucking Ezra Miller being accused of this, that, and the other thing, doing God knows what. I mean, he is being painted as a raving lunatic right now. And for those of you that don't know, Ezra Miller is the guy that's supposed to play the Flash in the new Flash movie. And he he, he already did play the Flash in the Justice League movies and all that stuff. And he, he actually had like a bit moment in uh, Batman vs. Superman. And he's, you know, I don't dislike Ezra Miller as an actor. I thought he was pretty solid. I think he was a little too over the top with, you know, the way he was portraying the character in in his few performances thus far. But they're not, he, he hasn't been terrible. That's the thing. It's certainly not enough that I, like, would be calling for a recast of him up to this point. But then all this shit turns out that he's, like, starting fights in nightclubs and shit like that. And he's doing... All sorts of bad shit. He's breaking into people's houses. And this is all allegedly. This is not all, you know, this is just what the story is. I'm not saying he necessarily did this, but the accusations are certainly mounting against him and it does not look good for him. So now they've kind of rolled out all of these options of like what they can do to salvage this movie, what they need to do if if it turns out that Ezra Miller can't, you know, if he ends up getting in real trouble, you know, all this, they've got, like, a big fucking plan laid out of, like, what their, their game plan is, and it, it's a, it's a very unpleasant time, because Michael Keaton, again, my favorite Batman, was supposed to be in the Flash movie as Batman, and they didn't, I mean, they, they're not, potentially we might not see his role in Batgirl or the Flash, and that leaves, the whole experience of seeing Michael Keaton again up in limbo. And that kind of leads me to 
want to say that we need this Batman Beyond movie. It'd be a really cool thing to do. I'd really like it if we, you know, we've seen a lot of DC movies and origin stories of Batman, and we've seen all sorts of other things, but it's like, if they did this Batman Beyond thing, it wouldn't be the same. You know what I mean? I, I was, I remember I once called Batman Beyond an original story, and my late friend Scott Hopper really gave me a big raft of shit about saying such a thing. And, you know, it's like he, he basically just told me, well, it's not really. It's, you know, it's basically the same Batman story, just rehashed in a futuristic world, you know. And I'm like, yeah, kind of. But, I mean, it feels to me like it is what would happen if you had the elements, like, elements of Spider-Man, like, his age, his maturity level, all of this stuff. And you mesh that with Batman. And you, that's what you get with Terry McGinnis, who is the the Batman Beyond character. You know, he, he plays Batman of the future and he's mentored by Bruce Wayne, who would hopefully be played by Michael Keaton. But I digress. So th- they keep talking like DC's got a 10-year plan and they're, they're going to do this. And apparently DC has come out and said that they were going to do a 10-year plan multiple times in the last... 10 years and they they didn't really ever stick to it but this is like the result of a new merger between I think it's WB and Discovery that they yeah Discovery and then so it's like they're they're gonna they're trying to figure out a, a good layout of how they should do their movies and I think what they should do is they shouldn't just try and be the DC version of exactly what Marvel has done they should do they, I mean, they, they were on the right track with Suicide Squad, but they really didn't deliver like they needed to. They need to sharpen up their writing. They need to get things where they need to be on that level and then see where they go from there. But, I mean, they've got a lot of work to do. I mean, they're already talking, you know, they've got this fucking Joker movie coming out in a couple of years that's, it's got Joaquin Phoenix in it again, but it's, uh... It's got Lady Gaga, and they're saying it's going to be a musical. And I'll tell you right now, I will not pay to see a musical comic book movie in theaters. I won't do it. If somebody tells me it's really fucking good, maybe. But for the most part, I'm like, I don't I don't really think that, the jo- that Joker needed a fucking sequel. It didn't. I mean, it's just, it didn't earn a sequel, you know? So that's... That's what I'm struggling with. They're already talking about how they haven't actually officially greenlit the sequel to The Batman with Robert Pattinson. They're, you know, because I mean, the whole the whole thing was with The Batman was that when it came out, it was like, what are we doing here? Like, this has nothing to do with anything. I mean, I'm excited for a new Batman movie, but what are we doing? You know, what are, where is this going to take us? Because they're not going to reincorporate this Batman into the DCEU, you know, the DC Extended Universe, it's just not going to happen. You know, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't mesh with it because there are other characters and other interpretations of the characters that don't fit with it. So it is what it is. I'm, I'm excited to see what comes. I hope that WB gets their shit together and actually like makes something work because that's what I'm most terrified by is it's like, what what is DC going to do? Are they going to overfix everything and they're going to fucking fuck it all up? You know, I mean, is that, that going to be a problem? Because it definitely could be. Anyway, I thought that was going to be like a little three-minute discussion and uh, kind of went off the deep end with everything. But, you know, it is DC, so I guess I, I kind of have the right. So, first movie I covered was Uncle Buck, released August 16th, 1989, directed by John Hughes. John Hughes is a fucking powerhouse family-slash-teen movie director from the 80s and 90s, mostly the 80s. He directed such movies as 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, Weird Science, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, She's Having a Baby, which I don't know what that one is, and Curly Sue with, I think that's Jim Belushi, and... I remember my dad liked Curly Sue, I think, when I was growing up, but I never really saw the appeal. John Hughes also wrote this movie. He has also written Mr. Mom, National Lampoon's Vacation, European Vacation, and Christmas Vacation. And I didn't notice if he had written Vegas Vacation, but 
much like many other people, I don't really give a shit about Vegas Vacation. For that matter, I don't give a shit about European Vacation, because I still don't think I've actually watched the whole movie, and it seemed like it was pretty bad. But anyway, he also wrote Pretty in Pink, Some Kind of Wonderful, The Great Outdoors, which is one I'm still very much on the fence about. Uh, he wrote Home Alone and Beethoven, the first one about the St. Bernard that is a St. Bernard. Okay. As far as the soundtrack's concerned for this movie, the score was done by Ira Newborn. And, you know, he's he's been on a lot of John Williams-type movies. And then uh, some of the more popular songs in the movie are like Mr. Sandman by The Cordettes, Wild Thing by Tone Loke, which is the rap song, not the, uh, the one by The Trogs, Bust a Move by Young MC, and Laugh Laugh by The Bo Brummels. And I really enjoy all four of those songs pretty well, so I'm... I'm I really like to hear those in this movie whenever I watch it. Of course, our uh, our titular character, John Candy, you know, he, he plays Buck Russell. He was in Stripes with Bill Murray. He was in Vacation. He's the guy at the amusement park. Uh, he's in Summer Rental, Armed and Dangerous, Spaceballs, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, The Great Outdoors, Home Alone, Cool Runnings, Wagons East, and Canadian Bacon, which was his final film. John Candy passed away, and I think it was 1994. And I, I don't, I didn't look into the circumstances of his death because I don't like to, you know, dive into like, oh God, what killed him? You know, what caused his death? Uh, next up is Jean Louisa Kelly. She plays Tia Russell, so she'd be Uncle Buck's niece, Tia Russell. And she was in the show Yes, Dear, and in something called The Fantastics. And she was in Mr. Holland's Opus. Macaulay Culkin plays her younger brother. He plays, you know, his name is Miles Russell in the movie. And obviously he was in Home Alone and he was in the, uh, you know, the podcast favorite Getting Even with Dad, which was fucking horrible. Richie Rich, My Girl, and The Good Son. Amy Madigan plays Shanice Kobolowski, who is the love interest of Uncle Buck. She was in Streets of Fire, which was a bad movie that they covered on How Did This Get Made? And she was in Field of Dreams and Gone Baby Gone, which was a solid movie, if I remember right. And then Laurie Metcalf is is also in this movie. She plays Jackie on, or, you know, Roseanne's sister on Roseanne. And she plays the character Marcy in this movie. So, you know, that's, she's... She's pretty solid. She plays. She's very weird in this. Like the way she plays the character is bizarre, and it's like if I didn't see her in anything else, I would have assumed that she was acting like she nor like she, like she was not acting at all. You know what I mean? Like she just acted like that as a normal person. So, couple of casting notes. Winona Ryder was the first choice for the role of Tia, but she had to turn it down because she was uh, shooting the movie Heather's, which. Let me put it this way. I'm glad that we didn't get Winona Ryder in this movie because I think it would have been terrible if she would have, if she would have had the role, you know, like if she would have been Tia Russell, it would have been horrible. But like at the same time, if you compare how much I enjoy either of these movies and, you know, if if I just went based on that, she 100% should have gone for Uncle Buck and not gone for Heathers because Heathers, a friend of mine made me watch that years ago. It's not my kind of movie. It is not like a good fucking movie at all. Okay, so here's the thing. There are a lot of actors listed in the IMDb trivia section that were supposedly considered for the role or turned the role down, the, just whatever. They were supposed to play Uncle Buck at some point in the process, and it didn't happen. So these are all the actors that I found that I noticed offhand that were actually notable. Danny DeVito, Robin Williams, Jack Nicholson, Tom Cruise, which I'm like, what are you fucking talking about? Dan Aykroyd, George Went, Michael Keaton, Joe Pesci, Bill Murray, Jim Belushi, Dudley Moore, Tom Hanks, Chevy Chase, John Travolta, and Ed O'Neill were all considered... That is the most comprehensive list I could find, but there were, it seems like there were still more that were listed that I didn't even bother to list. And I just, I combined them all into one because they, people just kept throwing shit out. And, and I always wonder because it's IMDb and, 
you know, everything's made up and the truth don't matter. So it's like people could just be throwing out like, oh, hey, they thought that this was this was a good guy for this role. And it's really just the opinion of the person posting to IMDb. So I don't always trust it. But OK, so plot synopsis. Uh, I'm going to do this on the fly because I'm dumb and I didn't fucking write one. But during a family emergency, a married couple calls a relative that they would seldom rely on for such a task as to watch their family while they are away. And that's that's the best I can do. I mean, I, I really fucking stumbled through that, but okay. So we get a little glimpse of the Russell's lives before this whole thing happens. You know, you see like how the kids interact with each other. You get this back and forth that's really genuine and it, it feels right. And they're, you know, swearing at each other and shit like that. And I, the, you don't see that in enough, like, in enough movies to say so. And it's just Tia, Tia is the oldest sister. And she is like this total bitch, you know, like she is just, she's pissed because her parents moved the whole family to Chicago from Indianapolis, and they did it clearly for the money. You know, they had, there is some monetary gain to be moving to Chicago area. And so it's like, Tia was all pissed off because she obviously had friends and things like that. She's in high school, this, that, and the other thing. And then you've got, you know, the two kids that, you know, Tia's trying to basically push that way of thinking of like, like, fuck our parents for what they did to us kind of thing, you know? So she just kind of lets them deal with that. In the beginning of the movie, we've established that, you know, they move from Indianapolis to Chicago. The kids all don't like it there. Uh, the parents are workaholics, clearly, and they are really losing touch with their family. I mean, just little, like, things that you hear them say to each other are like, holy shit, like, you know, they, they get him a hockey stick for you know, they talk about getting a hockey stick for him for his birthday, and he's like, hockey's been over for two weeks, and they have no fucking idea, which is like, holy shit. And Uncle Buck is, you know, he's in the city, and he's supposed to be starting a new job with at his girlfriend Shanice's business, and he's reluctant about starting work for his girlfriend, obviously. So, you know, it's not a completely unusual feeling to have. I mean, it... it gender roles reversed, it would be the same thing, you know? So Cindy's dad, who is the mom, has a heart attack, and it's like they're basically just scrambling. They're trying to figure out what they can do with their kids because they want to go and be with their, you know, their relatives at this time of need, and basically, like, everyone's unavailable to watch their kids, and they go back, you know, if they go back to Indianapolis, they're they're not sure what the hell they're going to do. You know, they need somebody they can trust and they consider a lot of their neighbors, but some of them, they just, they say, no, there's no way I would ask her for a favor or him for a favor, or, you know, some of them are out of town or whatever. And it's basically like, they don't know how long they're going to be away. They basically decide it's too big of a burden to ask somebody that's not a direct family member. And so they you know, they call Uncle Buck in the middle of the night, you know, after they get this phone call about the heart attack. So obviously, you know, we wouldn't have a movie here if Uncle Buck didn't say yes to coming in and watching the kids for them. And it's like when Buck gets there and it's, I mean, you just really know what you're in for when you see how he interacts because like Cindy clearly hates Buck. You know, it's not, it's not her brother. She doesn't, really like him very much, you know, she's just not a big fan, she doesn't like the kind of guy he is, and he kind of mortifies her, he's, he's asking Cindy all of these questions about, you know, different things to do, you know, what, what he needs to know about, which are just, they're things that, I mean, it's reasonable, like, although he asks about a little more ridiculous things, he just, it's all stuff that I would consider asking if I was in that position. You know, it's like, you never know what the hell to do. You want to try and ask all the questions you can, you know? And every time, like, I mean, you keep seeing Tia. She's kind of just monitoring the situation. And they don't really know that she's up and around. All I can think every time I see Jean Louisa Kelly playing Tia is how terrible Winona Ryder would have been in this in this role, it would have been fucking terrible. And and Tia decides 
almost immediately. Like when she comes down the morning after Uncle Buck has come and the parents have left, she basically has already decided that she is not going to be on good terms with her uncle and she is just not talking to him any more than she has to. You know, she's basically, in, in not so many words, but she's she's basically telling him to fuck off every chance she gets. And, and, you know, the kids come down and Uncle Buck is, you know, it's like he makes the kids, he, he makes the kids breakfast. And I remember when I was a kid, like, I don't, I don't have any memory of, ta- like, wanting, you know, on, like eggs with onions and a bunch of shit mixed into it with a half a grapefruit and a bunch of a bunch of adult ass shit like I wanted fucking cereal and that was it I was good with that but that's the thing is Uncle Buck he doesn't really like understand that so it's like he makes this breakfast for the kids they're not interested in it and basically it kind of drives a wedge between him and the kids almost immediately and then you know Tia kind of has them on her side for a minute and we get this interrogation after, um, I don't know if just Tia is out of the house or what's going on, but like basically Macaulay Culkin is sitting down at the breakfast table with Uncle Buck and he is just grilling him. Like he is just asking him every question under the sun and he is asking them in rapid fire. And apparently this this was accomplished by, for the, the shots of Macaulay Culkin, John Candy would put... Macaulay Culkin's lines on top of his head, on top of John Candy's head, and Macaulay Culkin would use that to read the lines rapidly and remember them all. And it was, it works out really good. It's, it's quite the fucking grill session. And you know, he asks him, you know, is he married? Does he have kids? Is he, you know, what does he do for a living? This, that, and the other. And it's like, and then at the end, he points out something about him having more nose hair than his dad does and stuff like that. And he's like, how nice of you to notice. He's like, I'm a kid. That's my job. And the car, the car, oh my God, the car. So Uncle Buck has this car that is just this old fucking sedan. Like it's, it's gotta be like 70s model maybe. And it's just, you know, it's burning oil clearly. And it's, you know, it's, so it's got this big smoky fumes coming out the back and it's like he everywhere he goes, you know, if he stops anywhere, the engine backfires after a while. And like it just it cracks me the fuck up every time I like it because it's like they make it sound like it's a fucking gunshot, this backfire. And they apparently used a real gunshot and a firecracker to accomplish the noise. And, he, you know, he's 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 dropping the kids off at school and he drops Tia off first and she basically is like giving him the runaround because she doesn't want to get a ride home from him. And she's already been embarrassed by, you know, what he's done by dropping her off in this fucking car. And, you know, he, he's like, what can, what time can I pick you up? And she's like, no, I'll, she's like, are you, are you deaf? I'll get, I'll get a ride. You know, I'll figure it out. I'll do something else. You know, I, I it's not, you know, it's not a problem for me to get a ride. And he's like, no, 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 I got my orders, you know, what What time? She's like, are you, are you serious? You know, like, get the fuck out of here. And he's like, stand me up today, and tomorrow I'll drive you to school in my robe and pajamas and walk you to your first class. And it's like, it's so hot. I, I fucking love it. I love everything that comes out of that dude's mouth. Like, everything he says is just so great. She, like, asks him if, it, if he remembered ever having been embarrassed, like... Like, he's embarrassed her in this moment. And he looks at her for a solid few beats. And then he just says, no. (laughs) And the kids just, the kids in the back smile like, oh, God. Because you know it's like, they were originally siding with Tia because she was familiar. But now that it's like, he's kind of putting her in her place, it's, it's a little bit better for them. And so, it's like, he, we keep seeing Buck call his girlfriend Shanice and it's kind of like they're you know on the outs with each other because now that he couldn't come to work for her when he said he was going to it's like he's in this position where you know he's trying to like make amends with her and explain to her what's going on and he's saying he's sorry but it's like he's doing such a terrible job about like it's one thing to joke with somebody but it's quite another to like not really realize that it's like 
there's a time and a place for that. And if they don't want to fucking hear about your bullshit, then don't fucking give it to them. And he starts, there's a really sad part. I mean, it's just, it's sad to me. I don't know that it's really that sad, but it's like, you know, I've talked about how Cindy, the mom doesn't, she's not a big fan of Buck. And so, you know, he's kind of like stuck sitting at their house during the day while they're at school or, you know, while the kids are at school. And it's like he, he's looking through their like wedding albums and stuff. And he like comes across a picture of like the wedding party and he's in the picture, but she folded over the picture so that she, that it wouldn't show Buck in the picture. Like that's, that's where she's at with Buck. You know what I mean? Like that's how little she likes this guy. And, and it's like that, that's what kind of seeps into, you know, him. They, there's a phone call from Cindy, you know, they're in Indianapolis and they're saying the dad's doing okay and all that stuff. And, you know, they're just kind of, Cindy's asking Buck about, you know, what's been going on. And, you know, Buck's asking her some questions and he's asking about the dog. Like, how much do I feed a dog? And she's like, um, I should have told you that, you know, he eats once because, you know, Buck says that he's been feeding him like four or five times a day. And he, he's like, so does he just like water? And, and the mom's like, yes, yes, I would, I would keep water out. That would be good. And he's like, well, I've been leaving the toilet seats up. Oh no, that, that blue water, that's, that's not good for him, is it? Okay. And it's like, oh my God, like, how could you possibly, wow. Anyway. So it's, I mean, it's a hilarious yet heartbreaking little interaction that they have on the phone. And, you know, in the midst of the phone conversation, like while Macaulay Culkin talks to the mom first and Tia picks up the phone and listens to what Macaulay Culkin says to her. And then while Macaulay Culkin goes to get Buck, Tia chimes in while they're waiting and basically says, Next time you go out of town, why don't you hire a murderer to watch the house? This guy's a joke and blah, blah, blah. So it's like, she's really fucking not pleased. And she's, she's trying to fucking lay as much groundwork as she can to explain why this guy's not a good deal. And there's this whole, I mean, there's this whole sequence where like the kids are like, they want to, they want to sleep in bed with, with uncle Buck and uncle Buck's like, no, 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 you know, this isn't happening. And then. Of course it happens and they, you know, they play Mr. Sandman and, you know, they're all over the place in this bed and on the floor and all this stuff. And so they had mentioned Marcy at the beginning of the movie when they were looking for people to, you know, to watch the kids. And it was like, basically Cindy just says, no fucking way. We're not, you know, I'm not asking Marcy. Like, it's clear that she like wouldn't want Marcy watching her kids. And she's like, she, she phrases it as... She's the last person I'd ask for a favor. And so it's like, we see Marcy and you don't know who she is at first. And she's, she's knocking on the door and she just kind of lets herself into their house. And Buck is trying to get the washing machine to work and he can't fucking get it to work. And he's, he's saying things like, what do I need to do? Talk dirty to you, blah, blah, blah. And like Marcy is creeping through this house and she hears this guy that she doesn't know and he's making all this noise and it's like she is freaking the fuck out. And I'm like, why wouldn't you turn around and leave and ask, you know, what's going on? You know, like, why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you go and like call the house and say, hi, who is this? You know, like, who, who am I talking to? And she doesn't do that. And like, they end up just having like a decent interaction where, you know, Buck explains what's going on and why, you know, things are the way they are. But it's just, it's a very odd thing to me. Like, if you're if you're in that situation, don't let yourself into somebody's house, first and foremost. But don't fucking do anything but turn around and run away when you hear a strange voice and you don't know, you know, what you're dealing with. Because the other thing is, is it's like, it doesn't make sense because it's during the day. Why would Marcy think that Cindy was going to be home? You know what I mean? It doesn't add up. They go to the bowling alley and you get Buck is constantly forcing Tia to go with them to do stuff because he doesn't want her getting involved with these guys that she's seen or that he's seen her with at school. And so it's like they go bowling and first things first, this 
creepy guy named Pal, who is just, who could not look like more of a sleazebag, comes up and starts hitting on her and talking to her about stuff. And like, Buck sees what's going on and immediately disperses the, the group, you know, like doesn't want any more of that to be going on. And he tells him to find his, his fucking game and get the hell out of there. And I mean, they just have this, all this funny shit going on at the bowling alley. And I mean, this is where you find out that Buck has been, you know, he's the kind of guy that like gets his money from, uh, from betting on races and stuff like that. And he's, you know, he knows a guy that knows a guy that's going to fix a race and they're going to be able to get their entire year's income for, you know, just this one race. And it's like, it doesn't, you know, it, it obviously is kind of painting a picture of what kind of guy Uncle Buck is. And they have, when he sees this guy that gives him the lowdown on this betting, he he does this fucking long and drawn out special handshake, right? And I, maybe I'm just a total fucking loser, but I never once had a handshake like that with anybody. Like, I never got it to where I was regularly doing a handshake that was super special with somebody that I would, you know, I would see them and I would start doing it. You know what I mean? And it's like, that's, that's the hard part is it's like, I, I don't, I don't know if it's a thing people are doing or not, but after, after bowling, we get, uh, you know, they, they had hinted at this early in the movie about, you know, Miles having a birthday coming up and the mom was basically dismissing it as like, oh no, we'll be back by then, you know? And like, they clearly don't know. And Marcy has explained to, to Buck that like, when her, or when her father had a heart attack, she was out of town for three weeks. So, like, just to kind of set the stage for, like, how potentially long Buck could be there. And Uncle Buck is doing the whole party thing. He's getting it all set up, you know. The mom hired a clown. And he's, you know, Buck's just doing these makeshift, like, giant pancakes on their fucking griddle. And, like, it's so fucking ridiculous. Like, he's... He's flipping these pancakes with a fucking snow shovel and it like, it doesn't look like any snow shovel I've ever seen because there's like no texture to it at all, but whatever. So he makes these pancakes and, you know, he makes this giant stack for them to, to eat and like, it's really, it's pretty fucking hilarious and, you know, he gets this, the clown comes and the clown's like clearly drunk and so the, the interaction between him and the clown is fucking great. Like it, it, uh. He ends up punching the clown out straight up because the clown just decides he doesn't want it. He doesn't see how it could possibly be a bad idea to have a bunch of drinks and then go and entertain some kids. You know, he, he doesn't get it. And and they do this POV shot of the punch or, you know, the couple of punches that we get from Buck to the clown. And it seems like it would be a super awkward way to set up a shot like it seems like it'd be really hard to make it look right but it really doesn't look bad it's it's not great but it's it's not bad and Tia is dating or you know is basically dating this guy at school named Bug and he's clearly not a good guy you know he's he's like pressuring her into sex and things like that and she's only 15 so it's like yeah I mean I could see wanting to figure out what the fuck's going on you know it's so her and and Bug are at this this party type thing out in the middle of nowhere, and Buck knows, you know, he takes the kids with him and he goes out to find them, and he kind of interrupts them in the middle of whatever they're gonna do, and Buck just he does such a great job of like intimidating this guy and letting him know where he stands with him and stuff, and like he he says something about like, do you know what he's like? We could bury the hatchet. You know what a hatchet is, right, Bug? And he's like, uh, it's an axe. And he's like, sort of. And then he like, he goes and he gets this this hatchet from his fucking car. And he says, he's like, I like to keep one on me. Or, you know, like, I like to keep one with me. You know, just, I like to keep it as sharp as possible. I've been known to circumcise a gnat. And he's like, he's like, but I like to keep one with me. Not to kill no, just to maim. And it's like, oh my God. Like, can you fucking imagine dealing with this guy? Like, cause if you see Bug, you're like, yeah, this, this guy doesn't have like much for physical prowess to where like he could, he seems like he would be able to like hold his own in a fight against a guy like Uncle Buck. But I mean, they just, they have this interaction. They've established that Bug is a piece of shit. And 
It's after this that we get a visit to the vice principal's office at the elementary school where Maisie, the youngest daughter, is, you know, her vice principal is tired of her. She's, you know, she's a silly heart and she's a, she's a dawdler and she, you know, she does all these things that are just not, she doesn't take her, her career as a student seriously. And it's like he goes in there and she's got this giant mole on her chin and you know, like the whole time she's explaining to him how disappointed he is or that she is with his niece. It's like, he's like, she's only six. And and she's like, that's no excuse. You know, don't give me that shit. And he goes off on this fucking rant about how he doesn't, he doesn't want to meet somebody who, you know, he doesn't want to meet a six-year-old who isn't, who is taking their academic career seriously, you know? But, but the whole speech that Buck gives to the vice principal and he ends it with telling her to go downtown and have a rat gnaw that thing off her face. Like he flips her a quarter. That's probably the defining moment of this movie. And then, you know, like Tia is trying because, you know, Buck is obviously fucking with her personal life and she doesn't like it. And she decides to fuck with his personal life. And, you know, it's his girlfriend Shanice calls and, you know, basically Tia decides to plant some seeds to get her suspicious of Buck and things like that. And, and I mean, Tia basically, like, Buck's supposed to go to this fucking race to bet out, or, you know, to bet on something that's going to make, like, his income for a year, and it's like, Tia basically just fucks him over and doesn't let him do it, and leaves without getting permission, you know, and so he's like, he, like, almost takes the kids to the track with him, and then he doesn't, and it's like, there's a scene where he's sitting in the car with the kids, and he's trying to decide if he should take them to the the track and it it's a really fucking gripping moment like John Candy fucking sells the emotions on this one like he's he's clearly upset he doesn't really know what to do you know what he's going to be giving up so much if he doesn't all that stuff so basically John Candy you know he doesn't go to this race he goes and tracks down where T is supposed to be and he finds Bug with another girl and we this happens off screen but he ties bug up and puts him in the trunk and then he goes and finds tia and picks her up and then they go to this you know off this you know roadside park type thing and they're gonna like hit golf balls at fucking bug and that's how it's gonna shake out and everything you know everything after this you know because it's like Buck has been right about, you know, not wanting her to get involved with these guys because they're, you know, they don't have her best interest at heart and they're not good people and all this stuff. And they only want one thing. And it all comes together. You kind of get some resolution with Tia and the parents because, you know, it's like she clearly has issues with them. And so she does that. And then, like, we get a, a resolution between Shanice and Uncle Buck and then, you know, they leave and, and it's all, it's all, you know, they put a bow on it at the end, I guess is the phrase that people like to use, but I don't really like to. I would say biggest praise for this movie is I still laugh out loud to this day at this movie. And I laugh at new things every time that I didn't notice before. Like there's a scene like at the, the moment where the parents are leaving the house and they're leaving the house with Uncle Buck in charge and they're like saying their goodbyes. You know, he like shakes his brother's hand, Uncle Buck does, and then he kind of shakes Cindy's hand and he like almost goes in for a little cheek kiss, you know, like you might do if you were that kind of person. But it's like so abbreviated. It's so, it doesn't ever land and she basically just shuts it down immediately. And it is so fucking perfect. It works so well. Uh, the casting and acting is splendid, especially in the fact that we didn't get Winona Ryder to be Tia. That really made me happy. Um, the chemistry, everybody's got great chemistry. I mean, I don't really know that I buy, I mean, I never can buy it, but like dudes like John Candy can get women like Shanice Kobolowski or Amy Madigan or whatever her name is. And I would say the pacing of this movie, like I noticed that it was like, basically I kept going to my phone to make a note, you know, every time, every like minute or two, I was like, Oh, I want to, I want to mention that. I want to talk about that. You know, it's like, I try and not talk about the entire fucking movie from beginning to end and 
make it like a basic walkthrough of the plot, but it's at the same time, it, it's difficult not to do that sometimes when there's this many good moments. My criticism of this movie is we will never have another John Candy, and I and I uh, I really am upset about that. You know, I mean, we're never gonna get another one, and. Some of the sound effects that they used were a little cartoonish. I mean, there were there were certain certain ones like there's a part where Buck gets knocked over by a door, and they show him laying on the floor, and they they play like the Tweety Bird noise of like birds chirping around his head and stuff. Not not my idea of a good humor type thing. A, a little IMDb nugget because I kind of already peppered in my trivia entries with some of the notes that I was giving. So IMDb nugget, Jim Carrey was considered for the role of Uncle Buck. No, he wasn't. He was not considered for the role of Uncle Buck. I I don't think people understand. Like Jim Carrey, he might have been around in the late 80s, but nobody was considering him for this role. I'm sorry, I don't buy it. Unless John Hughes had memoirs from before he died that said he specifically spoke with Jim Carrey, and thought about having him in this movie. I will not fucking believe it. And another nugget is when Buck hits the little five wood that is left-handed, he does hit it left-handed. That's great. That's terrific. Thank you for that information. Gosh, I can't imagine what I'd want to know more about. Runtime, 99 minutes. Budget, $15 million. Worldwide gross, $79.2 million. IMDb rating 7.0, Rotten Tomato Critics score 62%, Rotten Tomato Audience score 76%, personal rating 5 out of 5 stars, fuck yeah. Mr. Holland's Opus, released on December 29th, 1995, directed by Stephen Herrick. Uh, he actually, actually, I could not fucking believe how many notable movies this guy had, I hadn't ever heard of him in my life. But, I mean, he made Critters, which was, like, I think a Gremlins ripoff, basically. He made Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, which is definitely a future episode. The Mighty Ducks. The Three Musketeers. 101 Dalmatians, the live-action one with Jeff Daniels. Holy Man with Eddie Murphy. Rockstar with Mark Wahlberg. You can see a decline in quality happening here. Life or something like it. I've heard of that, but I've never seen it. And Man of the House, I believe, was Jonathan Taylor Thomas and Chevy Chase. My goodness gracious. Written by Patrick Shane Duncan. And the sound, the soundtrack to this fucking movie is spectacular. You know, there there are a lot of great songs on it. One, two, three by Len Berry. Lover's Concerto by The Toys. Louie Louie by The Kingsman. Keep on Running by Spencer Davis Group. Uptight by Stevie Wonder. Imagine by John Lennon, The Pretender by Jackson Brown. Those are all fucking spectacular, and they really do a good job, you know, making those songs fit into the movie. So we have Richard Dreyfus, who plays the titular role of Glenn Holland. He was in American Graffiti, Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, The Goodbye Girl, Stand By Me, Stakeout, and What About Bob, among others. And then we have Glenn Headley, which, by the way, is apparently how you pronounce her name. It's Glenn Headley. And she plays Iris Holland, Mr. Holland's wife. And she was, of course, in the world-renowned Getting Even with Dad. And, oh my gosh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and Dick Tracy. I didn't even notice, but that's a connective tissue, motherfucker. Getting Even with Dad. She was in that with Macaulay Culkin, and Macaulay Culkin was in... Uncle Buck, I'll be goddamned. Okay. I mean, I have another one, but it's that was pretty exciting to realize that just now. William H. Macy plays Vice Principal Walters and eventually Principal Walters. He was in the movie Fargo, Pleasantville, Air Force One, and Room with Brie Larson. And then Olympia Dukakis plays Principal Jacobs. She was in Moonstruck, Steel Magnolias, and the Look Who's Talking movies, which were all terrible, as I've mentioned multiple times. Uh, Jean Louisa Kelly plays Rowena, and she was in, that's right, Uncle Buck, Connective Tissue Motherfucker, and she was in Yes, Dear. And then you've got Terrence Howard, who's got a really small role, but this has to be like one of his first roles. He plays a character named Lewis. He's one of uh, the students, and he was in, of course, Iron Man and Hustle and Flow, among other things. I think 
Maybe he's the guy in that show Empire. I can't remember. There were no major casting notes. They didn't really talk about a lot of other people that were, you know, on the fence. Plot synopsis. We have an aspiring composer decides to take a fallback job as a teacher and slowly learns to teach them how to appreciate music. And that that's the shittiest fucking explanation of this plot, but I, I, I don't know why I keep forgetting to do plot synopses. So anyway, okay, so getting into the movie. Holland is fantasizing about this giant musical performance at the beginning to set the stage. So, you know, he's just kind of like going through the motions of it. His wife, Iris, urges him to go to his new teaching job. You know, he's he's laying in bed and he's about to oversleep. And so he's got to go get ready and be there on time. And so they they kick it right off with the soundtrack. It's fucking spectacular. And it's it's set initially in the 60s, you know, and we'll see a pretty big evolution, you know, and, and change in time. Holland thinks of, you know, Glenn thinks of this this uh, this job that he's getting as, as a music teacher. He's thinking this is going to be a fallback job. You know, this is like just something to to pay the bills while he is composing a symphony. And everybody's just kind of like, yeah, uh-huh, okay. If that's what you have to tell yourself, that's fine. And, you know, he meets he meets the vice principal, played by William H. Macy, and he meets the principal, played by Olympia Dukakis. You know, he just, he has a less than stellar interaction with William H. Macy, and then he has a pretty good interaction with Olympia Dukakis, and I mean, it's basically like, you know, they're just two different kinds of people, you know, they just, they don't, they, they're not, you know, clearly Olympia Dukakis is there to support Glenn, and then basically William H. Macy is there to be a thorn in his side. So he meets the gym teacher at lunch one day. The gym teacher kind of takes him under his wing. I'm always reminded whenever I see the word gym of that scene from that episode of The Simpsons where Homer goes and he sees a sign on a building that says G-Y-M and he goes, Gime? What's a gime? And then he goes inside and he sees people lifting weights and running on treadmills and stuff. And he goes, oh, a gime. <laughs> it's like, it's so fucking stupid, but I fucking love it, man. I can't get enough of it. So the gym teacher breaks it down to him that he's he's not going to have all this free time. You know, Glenn's not going to have the free time he thinks he's going to have. He's going to spend a lot more time with this job than he expects to. And they keep showing the class. They don't, it's like, they don't know, you know, they don't know the music, but they like, they suck pretty bad anyway. Like they just, they're clearly not very good and they need a lot of work, you know? And he he singles out one girl after class and says, you know, hey, you know, if if you want, I could, you know, I could work with you outside of class hours and we could, you know, try and sharpen up your skills and see where that gets us, you know? He just like, he, you know, she talks about how she's been doing it for three years. She's been playing the clarinet and it's just like, she's, she sucks way too bad at the clarinet because it's like, for me, I've tried to learn musical instruments before. And it's like, if I keep playing the same fucking song and I keep messing up in the same place, guess what? I'm going to fucking work as hard as I can on that forever until I get it right. So he gets pissed, you know, like basically they're just laying the groundwork for like what he needs to change about himself. You know, Mr. Holland, he needs to improve on his, his teaching methods. And he's, He's infuriated because, you know, he, he does a test on music appreciation and everybody flunks it and he's just fucking furious about it. And the girl with the clarinet reveals that her her whole family is immensely talented. You know, this is another after school session and she just basically says, you know, everybody, everybody in her family is, is really talented and really knows what they're doing and she has nothing. And... He basically just encourages her to keep going, keep trying. The principal gives Glenn a hard time at this point about not, you know, like how he's always in such a rush to get out the door that, you know, like she she says that he should be on their track team because he's like out there faster than the students, you know, out to his car. And so basically he's like really struggling because he's like, I really don't have any fucking time to do what I want to do. You know, I have to fucking deal with all this shit that you want me to do and it's not really fair 
And, you know, he's, he's kind of coming to grips with that. He comes home and his wife, Iris, tells him that she's pregnant. And he has, like, a pretty shitty reaction to it. And then he, you know, to kind of smooth it over, he comes in and explains. He tells the story about how he was introduced to John Coltrane and how somebody who thought they knew what he was into music-wise introduced it to him and they didn't, you know, like when he first listened to it, he couldn't stand it. And then he listened to it again and again and again and again and he couldn't get enough of it and he fucking loved it. And it was like, yeah, that's kind of, you know, that's, that's cool. I mean, I feel like as a human being, you should be better about, you know, if some, if the woman you're married to tells you that she is pregnant and she's visibly excited about it, I would say maybe learn how to rein in your emotions if you're not as excited about it so as to not upset her. But I'm, you know, I'm an old-fashioned guy. He finally, at this point, you know, he he goes into school and he starts trying to relate to these kids and he, he plays some of the music that they like, you know, and he, he plays like, oh, is it Johann Sebastian Bach that plays like the original symphony of like, what they use to make Lover's Concerto by the toys. And so it's like he's kind of got some some blood flowing in the classroom now. It's like they're actually like, holy shit, this stuff is actually cool. I never knew it because you were such a shit teacher before. And then, you know, he breaks down at home and he realizes that, you know, if they're going to have a child, him and Iris need to find a house and they need to move into that as opposed to being in an apartment. So the girl, you know... The girl with the clarinet, uh, Miss Lang, she, Gertrude Lang is her name, but anyway, she tells Glenn that she's giving up the clarinet, and he finally, like, appeals to her on a more personal level, and kind of gets her to think about the, the good things she feels about herself, and not trying to constantly work through her lack of confidence, you know, and just, and, and feel good, you know, and it seems to work and she actually like comes around and starts playing well. And they use this, this Vietnam war broadcast to kind of set up a little bit of foreshadowing. They, uh, they, you know, they're talking about having to send people to war. And I don't know if it was like Lyndon Johnson. I don't, I didn't recognize the voice really, but so they show a big long scene where he is, cause he's been teaching drivers training courses in the summer to make money and he has to go because his wife is, you know, in labor and he's driving like a maniac. He's going the wrong way down a one way, all that stuff. And he comes in to the hospital room. It says, you know, it's like, and Iris says to him, come meet your son, Coltrane Holland. And I got to be honest, like that moment, I was not loving it. Like I was like, they could have fucking presented what this child's name was in a different way, but it basically was like a, a big ham-fisted smack on the head of like, hey, this is the kid. This is what we named it because we talked about that like five minutes ago. All right. You know, it doesn't, it didn't really work very well for me. It could have been a lot more subtle. Uh, The school is addressing Glenn's use of rock and roll and teaching. They're terrified by it. And basically, Mr. Holland explains that it's just the way he's getting through to them. It's the way he's helping them learn is by talking about the the music that they like, you know? And, of course, like, Vice Principal Walters, by played by William H. Macy, is, like, super against it. He doesn't see any benefit in using rock and roll music, and he's just this really great, uptight character. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't like any of that shit. And the gym teacher reaches out to Glenn again when, you know, they, they basically, the principals decide that they want a marching band for their... Uh, their football team and so they you know they have Glenn start that up and the gym teacher I I never learned what the gym teacher's name was but he he's a big enough character in this movie that I probably should have learned but anyway the gym teacher asks Glenn to take this this kid that's been having problems with grades and he's basically not able to play football because of his grades and he's going to get kicked off the wrestling team because of his grades. And he sees, you know, if Glenn could do it where he would have have the kid be on the marching band and do it for academic credit and, 
you know, so Glenn has to work with this kid to figure out, you know, what his strengths would be and how he would get there. It, the kid's played by Terrence Howard, and he's very young in this movie. I, I'm guessing it was like his first role. But so they queue up a montage of Mr. Holland teaching Terrence Howard how to, you know, how to get good at drumming because that's what he he gets on is the drums and the marching band and basically they play like Stevie Wonder's uptight and they just you know do this big long thing of like showing how the kids getting better and all that stuff and it's it's pretty nifty it's pretty pretty well concocted i it really it really does a good job of just showing like how he works with them and what he, what different things he does and it's at about this time that we find out that Coltrane, aka Cole, who is Glenn's Glenn and Iris's son, is deaf. You know, they go to a parade, and Glenn's doing the marching band thing for the parade, and Iris is like, you know, the this fire alarm is going off on this fire truck, and everybody's like covering their ears and they're like, oh god, this is terrible. And I'm like, that's <laughs> I mean. Anyway, that that's the way they find out the um the the kid is deaf, right? And so obviously this is heartbreaking to to Mr. Holland, you know. Glenn is beside himself because he's just so sad that his son's not going to be a musician, you know, that's clearly what's gonna happen. And I, I just find it funny because I, I heard this talked about in another podcast where they were saying how it, like actors overdo things, you know what I mean? It's like they they don't do things the way people normally would. It's like if you forget your, or you know, if if you're in if you're in a movie and you're an actor and you want to demonstrate that you've forgotten your cell phone at your house, you'd like pat down your pockets and you'd like throw your arms up and be like, oh shit, and like you'd just throw a big shit fit. And in reality, you know, the the way they compared it was like a regular person would just pretty much turn around and go back and do, you know, they wouldn't make a big production out of having forgot. And so that's what it reminded me of is like when the fire alarm's going off at the parade, they are uh, like the sirens going and it's like everybody in the crowd is covering their ears and ducking down and shit. And I'm like, are you fucking serious? You've never heard a loud noise in your life? Like what is going on? It's a very intense scene when Iris breaks the news to Glenn about... Cole not being able to hear. It's very, very gripping, very emotional. It, it really tugs at the heartstrings. He basically has this little uh, bit in class about, you know, talking about Beethoven and how Beethoven was going deaf and what he was doing. You know, he like sawed the legs off his piano and laid with his ear to the ground and would play out everything, you know, so he could hear it. They, they really do a good job of showing like the frustrations of having a disabled child, you know, having having the kid be deaf and not being able to communicate with him is tough, I'm sure. It's at this point we see Forrest Whitaker, who, by the way, was in, like, I didn't realize when I wrote the note and I wasn't really thinking about it, but he was in fucking Fast Times at Ridgemont High in like a bigger role. And that was like the mid 80s. And this is the mid 90s. Like he was not high school age, by any stretch at this point. Like, he was definitely into his 30s, I want to say. But anyway, unless it was, like, maybe his son or something, I didn't really look it up. But they show that Terrence Howard's character gets killed in the war. They they mention that, and they they have this, this sequence because, like, interspersed with that is, like, this kid who's on drugs in class, and he knows all the material, but he doesn't, like, appreciate the music like he should, and... So Glenn kind of has a heart-to-heart with him. And that's kind of like the most forgettable part of the entire movie is is when he's talking to this kid, you know? At this point, I remembered, I was like, oh, right, Gene Louisa Kelly is in this fucking movie as Rowena. And I had forgotten all about that until I watched it, that she was also in Uncle Buck, which I'm covering in today's episode as well. So bravo me for being dumb. Glenn keeps having to come to grips with the fact that he's kind of been a bag of shit father to Cole. Like, he hasn't... He's kind of put him on the back burner for a lot of reasons, and it's not okay what he's done. And Iris kind of explains to Glenn that it's like, you know, he's he's kind of made it clear that his students are a priority, and his son has taken none of that priority whatsoever. And Jean Louisa Kelly 
you know, she plays this Rowena girl. She's this really talented singer and dancer. It's so hilarious seeing her in this movie because she's like so vibrant and like lively and happy. And it's like her character in Uncle Buck is the polar opposite of that. Like not even close, man. Like it's ridiculous. And um, she she comes across, you know, she comes across this, this music that, that Glenn's been writing when she's, you know, after hours, she's with him at school and she sees that he's been working on this, this opus and doesn't, it doesn't really like, they kind of explain that he's been working on it, right? <laughs> I said at this point, because you keep seeing Rowena singing and I want to say Rowena's singing is technically proficient, but there's really no heart or soul in it. And that's, that's really how I feel about it. She doesn't really seem like she's into the music that she's singing. Like, she just seems like she's kind of out of it. At this point, you know, we're getting to, like, you know, it was the 60s when it started, and we're getting into, like, the the late 70s, early 80s. You know, in 1980, John Lennon dies, and Glenn's really upset about it, and he basically kind of blows off Cole again because he, you know, he's upset about the, the John Lennon death, and, like, uh, Cole gets really pissed at him because he's like, how could you think that I don't give a shit about John Lennon? Like, you don't think I know about the Beatles, about any of that stuff? Like, you really don't appreciate it? You don't fucking teach me how to do any of this stuff. Or, you know, you don't ha- show me any of this stuff that you care about. And, like, Glenn kind of, like, is like, fuck me, I'm a piece of shit. This is my bullet point. So Glenn's going to repair a lifetime of neglect of his child by putting on a music show with flashing lights and singing Beautiful Boy at the end and inserting that child's name. That's all he fucking does and everything is all good between Glenn and Cole. That's all that has to happen. That's a bit of a point of contention because it's just a little too much for me. So we flash forward to the 90s and everybody's looking pretty rough, you know. We We don't see much of the 80s and... So everybody's getting really old and it's it's like this, you know, you're starting to see that it's clearly like a big love letter from, you know, like all you've seen in this movie is like a love letter to the arts and music programs at schools, you know, at public schools. And it's just, it's heartbreaking because like Principal Walter explains to Glenn that the, the music program is being canceled and they're moving on. Glenn's kind of being forced into retirement because he really can't do anything else. And him and the gym teacher have a little heart to heart. And and it's like, as soon as, as, soon as what's going to happen happens, you know, like it starts to happen, you kind of think to yourself like, oh no, I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry right now and I'm going to keep crying for like 10 minutes and it's going to be really unpleasant. So I do. You know, there's all of these, there, you know, Glenn's walking out after like emptying out his desk and moving out of his classroom and he's going to go home and he goes into the, they hear music coming from the auditorium and he goes in there and it's like so fucking emotional. He just, all of these kids that he worked with and, you know, that, that he taught over the years are in this group and they're all, they're all there to thank him for all he's done for them and they're just like, you know, they they're gonna play his his opus, you know, they're gonna they're gonna play it for him. And he's you know, he's gonna lead them and you know it, it's super fucking emotional, guys. I get I'm I'm having trouble, like I'm not even diving into too much about what happens because I don't wanna start choking up a little bit on the fucking air. It's probably not a good look. So I mean I will say the druggy guy shows up at this this thing in the auditorium and it's like I don't give a shit about druggy guy I don't give a shit about the guy that was baked in class and didn't give a shit about the music I don't really care the whole sequence is just beautiful you get to see what great people these these kids have become you know thanks in part to Glenn Holland's wonderful work I would say Richard Dreyfuss's performance in this movie is is masterful it's it's fucking wonderful he does an amazing job uh the soundtrack is obviously splendid throughout uh, Glenn Headley is underrated as fuck, and that's the honest truth. I mean, she's solid. The plot is, <laughs> this is the most pretentious sounding thing. I'll read it verbatim. The plot is a rich tapestry of storylines and commentaries on the world as life marches on. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the only criticism I have of this movie is how they haphazardly resolve the issues between Glenn and Cole. And they act like it wouldn't take a lifetime of therapy to to sort out. A couple of pieces of trivia 
Um, all of the deaf characters featured in this movie are deaf in real life. Jean Louisa Kelly did her own singing and dancing as she is professionally trained. Richard Dreyfuss in real life said that he hates rock and roll as actors are often not their characters in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's right. Calling you out. I don't fucking think that's trivia, but I didn't put that in my nuggets because the nugget I found was Richard Dreyfuss plays a husband and teacher whose first name is Glenn. It is interesting to note that the actual first name of the actress who plays his wife is Glenn. Yeah, that's super interesting. Runtime, 143 minutes. Budget, $31 million. Worldwide gross, $106.3 million. IMDb rating, 7.3. Rotten Tomato Critics score, 75%. Rotten Tomato Audience score, 84%. Personal rating, 4.5 out of 5 stars. I love it. It's just that one little tidbit about the, the father-son relationship I just don't buy and I don't really care for it. I think they should have resolved it sooner if they were going to do anything. But what can you do? That's today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I want you to tell me if you didn't enjoy it. I, you know, I've got a couple of episodes. Uh, I should say like four episodes this month. And then next month I will have four Christmas episodes. And I'm still trying to figure out how I want to do those. Because it's not going to be as easy as like the cookie cutter of like favorites, new to me, bad, and classics that I have been marching to. It's basically like... I have to see about if I'm just going to do all faves or, you know, only do one bad episode and the rest will be, I don't know. I have no idea what, what the plan is, but I think I, I'm getting some ideas for some movies because there are some movies I've been wanting to cover and there are some movies that I want to cover so bad that I think I would be better off just recording a separate episode for those movies and leaving it at that because there's nothing I can do to condense them down. It's just, it's rough, but okay. So yeah, let me know what you think and have a wonderful day. Peace out. Brandon at Random Reviews is performed, written, directed, produced, and edited by Brandon Griffiths. Theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz from Fiverr. 